Snap Studios. They say that the sins of the Father will be visited upon the sons. I hope not. Because if it is true, my boy's in big trouble. <laughs> Listen to Spooked. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From KQED and PRX, you've crossed over to Spooked. As a kid, my uncle came from the big city to stay with us briefly on our farm in rural Michigan. And at night, under stars so bright, you could almost read by them. He tells me stories about all sorts of things. He knows all sorts of things, like about conversion vans or where to carry your extra cash and how a real man mixes his own cologne. I listen because I'm a farm boy. I don't know farmer stuff. Like about chickens and goats and cows. And one evening, on the way back from church, my uncle says he needs a new pair of boots. And we stop by the Genesee Valley Mall in Flint, Michigan. Inside, huge, brightly colored signs. See the missing link. Half man, half beast. The real Bigfoot. A man. Mid-sentence with round spectacles and a red-striped suit rumbles low and clear to a group of shoppers. Perhaps the abominable snowman, the yeti, or the last Neanderthal. See for yourself. Make your own decision. And I know it's a long shot, but I ask my pops, please, please, can we go see? And just as my father is about to say, hell no, my uncle's like, come on. Let the little niggly take a peek. Pop size. I. Yeah, boy! In the middle of the mall, there sits a trailer, a curtain entry, and a line of people snaking through the aisles waiting for the chance to see what's inside. Now, I spend whole parts of my summer looking for Bigfoot prints or Bigfoot tools or tufts of hair in the Michigan woods. And I haven't found any yet, but I know it's just a matter of time because if an ape can hide itself anywhere, it's here in these Michigan forests. And I'm excited. My uncle's excited. And maybe my dad, maybe he's a little bit excited too. And as we approach the curtain with our tickets, a man whispers to us, the please be quiet. It's possible. So in order to not damage the integrity of the specimen, take a good look, but don't linger. 
give everybody their chance to see a piece of history. Then he pulls back the curtain. We walk inside. Floor lights burn low. There is one room in the middle rumbles a large open industrial freezer. Inside the freezer rests a man-sized block of solid ice and visible inside this block of ice the figure a hairy ape-like creature with its arm raised partially obscuring its face I've been down to look as close as I can but the ice the ice is not clear it's clouded like you can see something's in there but not make it out entirely and the lights are dim I stare at this frozen block from every angle I can amidst the rest of the spectators before the man ushers us back outside the trailer. Walking away from the spectacle toward our car in the parking lot. No one says anything for a while. And my uncle nods his head. I told you. I told you. Proof squared. We saw it with our own eyes. The link between man and ape. Gets this starry look in his eyes. Mark my words. That's the scientific breakthrough of the century. Look at my father. My father looks at me. I don't even have to say anything. Because I don't know about proof squared and conversion vans and how to mix my own cologne. I'm a farm boy. And farm boys work around animals. I just know that whatever that is up in that ice, that ain't no animal. Certainly not an animal that ever wandered any woods. Ain't a person neither. Later on, I tell my dad, Dad, you should get your money back. He looks at me, smiling. Why? You still on the hunt for that Bigfoot, ain't you? Yeah. Did what you saw make you want to find them more? Like you want to find them less? More? Well then, seems to me, We got exactly what we paid for. Spook starts. Now. dad and his uncle are planning a fishing trip at Devil's Lake. And it turns out they don't call it Devil's Lake for nothing. Spoot.
before 4th of July, my family from Missouri on my dad's side was coming to visit. We had rented this beach house for a week. My dad had rented a charter to go halibut fishing on the Oregon coast. That was like going to be the big highlight of our week was the halibut fishing. I was born in spina bifida, and so I have to have the use of a wheelchair. But that didn't stop me from getting in the outdoors. Growing up, my dad would take me fishing, you know, trout and uh, bluegill. But this was going to be the big leagues. It was like a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I I was happy about that. We rented the beach house. We're getting all settled. First couple of days were really nice. And then we get the call from the charters that, oh, we can't take you out because the seas are looking really choppy. I was feeling pretty bad about that. I, my dad, and my Uncle Wayne were like, well, it'd be a lost cause if we just, like, you know, didn't do any fishing. So... We decided to, like, look at, like, lakes and stuff like that. We found this place called Devil's Lake. We thought, goodest place as any, let's go there. We woke up at, like, 5 o'clock because fishing in the morning is the best because that's when the fish are more active, they're waking up and they want their breakfast. We piled up into the truck. We're driving there. There was trees on all sides of us. It was just pure wilderness, except for, like, the road in front of us. So we get there probably around 5.30. It was still dark. My uncle parks the truck. They unload me, they unload all the fishing gear. There's like a uh, pathway that leads to this dock. My dad and uncle sent me out on the dock, right? They baited my hook, cast it out, gave me the pole, and they go back to get like, you know, the other stuff like the coolers and chairs for themselves. I'm sitting there on the dock and I'm feeling uneasy. I mean, I can't see into this water. It's like a dark gray. And I was feeling uneasy about that. And so I'm looking up at the sky. I'm thinking about like, well, maybe I'll see an osprey or a hawk. Or if I was lucky, a bald eagle, which is like one of my favorite animals. And then... I feel a jerking sensation, and I get spun around like 180 degrees, and I got dumped out of my wheelchair. The chair was, like, pulled out from under me. I'm lying on my stomach, and I heard the splash of my wheelchair hitting the water. I'm dazed. I'm, like, looking at the dock, like, what just happened? And then I felt like a pressure up in my thigh. 
I don't have much sensation in my legs, but I, I felt something grab my leg and it was pulling me and I'm being pulled off the dock. I managed to flip myself over onto my back. That's when I saw her. Just her head and her shoulders were out of the water. She had lips just like a human. She had a nose just like a human. But her eyes had a rectangular pupil that was like a golden color. Her skin was a mottled bluish gray green, like somebody mixed a bunch of watercolors and splashed it onto her. That's kind of what her coloring was like. And she was covered in these sharp, armored-looking scales. She had these flowing seaweed-like tendrils on top of her head. And they went slightly down to her shoulders. It looked like a woman's head of hair. I see this being, and she's holding onto my leg. I seized up. She looks at me. There was anger in that face. As soon as we locked eyes, she leapt out of the water, leaps on top of me. I just feel like raw, sheer panic. She had her mouth open. Her teeth, they had conical points. They weren't like super like sharp. They looked more like they were for crushing. I instinctively bring my right arm under her throat. She let out like the strangled hiss. She was trying to bite down on me. And then she got her claws under me they dug into my back. I'm just screaming. I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to die. All of a sudden, I see my uncle above her. He had like a look of panic on his face. He had this fishing club in his hand, and he just brought it down on the back of her neck in a quick succession, just pop. She was still holding on to me, but her grip had loosened on me. Immediately afterwards, my dad comes along, and he puts his boot in the side of her face, and she flinches again. Once she let go of me, my uncle grabbed me by the shirt, and he pulled me away. At that point, I was, like, so shocked that I was just staring up at the sky... I heard a splash, and I assumed that was her going back into the water. But I did not want to look. I just had my eyes in the sky. 
My uncle had one side, and my dad, he had me on the other side, and they were carrying me towards the truck. They put me in the back seat. My dad got in the back seat with me. My uncle is driving. My daddy's telling me, he's like, it's gonna be okay. We just gotta get to a hospital. All I'm just thinking about is the stinging in my back. We got to the hospital. My uncle got out of the car. He runs in the emergency room. And a lot of these doctors and nurses, they came out. They get me into the wheelchair. I'm leaning forward. I got people supporting me so I don't fall out of the wheelchair. They're asking me, so you got attacked by a mountain lion? I just went with it. I immediately nod. Like, yeah, yeah, I did. I assume my uncle didn't want to say what really happened, so he just made up the mountain lion story, and I went with that. I was in too much pain. I didn't argue the point, and neither did my dad. They wheeled me into this room. They immediately went to work cleaning the wounds. That added to the stinging sensation. But at the same time, they got like a mask over me and that filled me with anesthetic. And so that didn't even last like 10 seconds before I was out. So it was nighttime. Me and my dad are alone in the hospital. He was spending the night with me, watching over me as I recovered. The doctor said the lacerations weren't as deep as they had feared, but they had still wanted to keep me overnight for observation. I'm lying there. It started to sink in like, I was kind of in disbelief, like, did that happen? Was that real? And then I asked my dad, so what did you see? He described me that he and Uncle Wayne, after they had gotten me set up on the dock, they went back to the truck and they were getting the supplies out. They just heard me screaming. He and Uncle Wayne just ran up to the dock. He saw the, the being. It was on top of me. It had me like in a hugging position. She had a torso, like a human, arms, legs, with like a six-foot tail. It's like an alligator's tail. Its tail was swishing in the water behind it as it's trying to bite me. He recalls kicking it and it, like, flinching when he kicked it. And then it slid off from on top of me from the side of the dock and just went back into the water. I asked him, what do you think it was? And he didn't have an answer for me. After I was released... 
I tried to forget about the whole thing. I didn't tell my sisters or even my mother about this. I didn't think she would believe me. My dad knew what happened. My uncle knew what happened. That was enough for us. Because you hear about this stuff getting out and, you know, people be made fun of and stuff like that. And So why draw that type of attention ourselves? But it's like something I couldn't really forget. It wasn't until 2021 that I started thinking, you know what, I think it's time I share my story. If I get my story out, people can hear it, and maybe they can share some of their own experiences. And maybe I can have, like, some sort of closure. My dad, he did not approve. It kind of hurts. I mean, I'd like to have him support me. But, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do. My uncle, his advice to me was just to kind of move on from it. He thinks I should do my best to forget about the whole thing, but, you know, it's kind of hard to do. Despite what happened, I still like the Oregon coast. There's like the, a certain atmosphere about it that just makes me feel good about going there. But I haven't been fishing since that incident. I don't like to get too close to the water. Zach, for sharing your story with the Spooked. The original score was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Zoe Frigno. Next up, on Shirley Spikala, this little girl. Her family lived on the Caribbean island of Granada. She was always told to get home before dark. And you're about to find out why. So I was coming from school one afternoon about three o'clock. We lived about a two-mile walk from the convent I attended. It seemed a long way because it was downhill and uphill and then down. I had to wear a uniform every day, which was a navy blue pleated skirt and a white shirt tucked into the, the waistband and a blue and silver tie. And then we had these small straw hats. I hated hats. There was a group of us walking and those sort of dropped off as we passed their homes. So it was just me when we reached our neighborhood. 
there were three men, local men, fixing potholes at the bottom of our driveway. They were leaning over because they had put gravel in the pothole. They were tamping it down with their shovels. I had to pass them to go up to the gate of the house. One of them stood up from what he was doing to watch me pass by. He turned to look at me and follow me with his face, his head, his eyes, follow me up the road. The man was not smiling. His face was serious. His eyes were very red. I mean, I've seen people with red eyes because of smoking pot or lacking sleep or something. But this guy's eyes were abnormally red. His whole eye was red. Not even blinking. That spelt danger to me. I wasn't sure what he wanted. I just knew something was wrong with this man. I'd heard all these stories. The parents would tell us it was important that we go back home before night because these creatures would come for us, called Ligaru, which is werewolf, shapeshifters. When you meet these creatures on the road, they look like regular people, but we were warned not to say good night or good evening first. Let them speak first. If you spoke first, and if they were not human, the person can change its shape entirely into a creature that can hurt you. So we have to be home before dark or else. I just took one quick glance at him and then I just raced off to the house. When I came home after seeing the man, I wanted to tell my mother, but Dor was talking with my mother and Dor was crying. Dor was our nanny. Dor was her surname, and she was very motherly. She made sure our school clothes were clean, and when we came home with a scratched knee or fell out of a tree and we were hurting, she would hug us. I loved her. We all did. I didn't know why she was crying. I was sad for her, but my mother was just laughing at Dor and saying, Oh, come on. So I just kept quiet, never said anything. I went and I did my homework. We had supper. Afterwards, I asked my mother, why was Dora crying? She said, because she was afraid of some man coming to the kitchen. Our kitchen door was hinged in halves, two halves. And door kept the top half open. The bottom half was latched. The man, he'd come to the kitchen three times. The first time he asked for a slice of bread, which door gave to him. He thanked her and walked away. 
The second time he knocked, asked, can she give him, please, a glass of water? She did that. He drank the water and thanked her and walked away. The third time when he came, he asked for a match. I don't know why he would need a match unless he was smoker. Door went off and when she came back with the match, he had opened the bottom half of the door and had actually stepped into the kitchen. That scared her because he stopped to stare with his red eyes. Such red eyes. I realized it's the same man. The same man I had seen fixing the road with the red eyes. Dora felt something was wrong. She didn't know what to do. She felt he would come back again, you see? She felt something was unfinished business. My mom thought she was just, you know, talking crap. So I, I didn't say anything. Well, Dora was late in coming to work next morning. She always stayed in the servants' quarters. She would come in in the morning at 6.30, 7 o'clock and prepare breakfast, set the table, etc. But she never showed up. My mother said, oh, she must have overslept. Surely go and wake her up. I went to the servants' quarters and I knocked loudly, calling her name, and there was no answer. There was a little hole in the door where my brother and I used to peep at her changing her clothes. You know, children do that. She was lying on the bed as if she was still sleeping. She was in her nightgown. I thought she was very pale. She was almost as pale as the white sheets. And this is a brown-skinned woman. I ran back and told my mother... It looks as if she was sick. She asked my father to go and see what's wrong with, with Doa. After calling and knocking as well, my father used a master key, opened the door. I was peeping through the door when Daddy went in. I saw blood in the crook of her arm. There were two holes out of which there was blood coming. There were the size of two teeth. What had such big teeth that could dig two holes and suck her blood? My father said, oh my God, she's not well. Daddy took her immediately to the hospital where she had to get a blood transfusion. Dor refused to stay in Grenada. No, no, no. I don't want to stay in this island, not one day more. She was from St. Kitts, and so Daddy arranged for her to go back to St. Kitts. I was sorry, but I totally understood why she would want to leave Grenada. The next time I came from school, and every afternoon when I came from school, I made sure 
I looked wherever there was road work being done to see if the same man would be there so I could rush past. But I never saw him again. Only as I grew older, I realized that a shapeshifter is what attacked door. I heard my father telling my mother about the things that he encountered with the local country people. He was a magistrate in Grenada. It's similar to a judge, but a magistrate judges minor cases, DUI, theft. My father heard about these shapeshifters through the court cases that he judged over. He found that there was a lot of evil where people had made a pact with the devil and been given certain abilities to turn themselves into a lizard or a bird or some other small creature where they could get into your house. They attack people not to kill them but to suck their blood. That seems to be their sustenance. The man was probably, I mean, none of us saw him change his shape. We presumed it was him, but whatever it was that was able to sneak into her locked room attacked her. I didn't know at the time because I was a child, but as an adult, I researched it and I found out. All I had to do was to pour line of salt, sand, or, or rice across the door sill and across the window, and the entity would have to stop, and they would have to count every grain of whatever it is, and daylight would come and meet them. If the sun comes up without them being back in their skin, they die. Years later, my husband and I opened a guest house in our home. Everybody else wanted as much air as possible, all windows open, ceiling fans on. But every Caribbean person we have had stay with us have all closed their windows in tight, close all the louvers tight. When I ask, why you close up everything like that? They said, oh, they want to keep bad spirits out. I was in my early 40s. I happened to see Dor sitting at the airport in St. Kitts. I said, Dor, is that you? I said, yeah, yes, Miss Shirley. Call me Miss Shirley. I sat down with her. And I said, Dor, is it true what happened to you in Grenada? I just wanted a confirmation that I was not dreaming, that it actually happened. She lifted her sleeve up and showed me she had the scars of two holes, the crook of her arm. 
And she nodded. She said yes. I did not ask Dora for any more details. I didn't want to talk about it anymore because I would have been frightened all over again. When we are out in the evening, unless I absolutely am sure of the person, I never talk to them first because you never know what they are. Thank you, Shirley, for sharing your story to Spooked. Shirley now lives on the small and beautiful island of Montserrat, where she stays on eternal guard for shapeshifters. The original score was by Doug Stewart, was produced by Ann Ford. Born of Fire. Some folks say the jinn walk amongst us. Others claim the world is inhabited by myriad fae, fairy, the fair folk. Near where I sit even now, people claim the Thunderbird still flies Pacific Northwest. People say a lot of things. But if you have firsthand knowledge, experience, history with creatures of legend, then you better believe I want to know all about it. Secrets want to be free. Let us know. Spook at snapjudgment.org because there's nothing better than a spook story from a spook listener. Spooked at snapjudgment.org. If you need that spook gear, I know you do. The t-shirt of your dreams is available right now at snapjudgment.org. And remember, if you like your storytelling, under the bright light of day, get the amazing, stupendous sister podcast, Snap Judgment. It is storytelling with a beat. Spook is created by the team that knows well and good the difference between a Sasquatch and a Yeti. Except, of course, for Mark Ristich, they all taste good with barbecue sauce to him. There's Davey Kim, Chris Hambrick, Leon Morimoto, Teo Ducat, Marissa Dodge, Zoe Ferrigno, Ann Ford, Eric Yanez, Tessa Paoli, Cody Harjo, Lola Abrera, Miles Lassie, Yari Bundy, and Doug Stewart. The spook theme song is by Pat Masini Miller. My name is from Washington. And we expect our monsters have powers we cannot comprehend. They can see further. They can run faster. They can jump higher. They have the temerity to actually hunt the apex predator. We are not accustomed to being stalked. So we take all of their qualities together and we label them supernatural. More than nature. Beyond nature. But in the end, they are just as much an aspect of nature as the mountains and the trees. We are all nature's children. And we must all obey her edicts. That's why even the most grotesque monstrosities, they cringe from the simplest bomb of all. Because basic precautions are always the most effective. 
This is why I beg you, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, ever, never turn out the lights. This story was summoned in the dark of night by KQED and PRX.